Hi and welcome to The Rock. The Apostle Paul left his young protege, Titus, on the island of Crete to finish the work of establishing biblically qualified pastors in every town. He writes Titus with instructions on how to do this and how to build a healthy church that can impact the world for the gospel. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Titus entitled, Finish the Work. All right, awesome. We are picking up in Titus chapter 3. It is the last chapter of Titus, and trust me, he's going to go out with a bang, and you will not leave this place unchallenged, shall I say, all of us. Very challenging words and very encouraging uh, as well. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer to prepare our hearts. Now, Father God, we pray that you would do just that, prepare us to receive, put in our hearts fertile soil. Lord, that you'd create an openness in us, a hunger, that you would show us your grace so that we would be favorably disposed to hearing challenging exhortations in the light that would help us receive, understand, and to put them into practice so we're not just hearers of the word, but doers. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Mother's Day is here, and as Mother's Day uh, approaches, there's always a lot of articles uh, in the blogosphere. Uh, 25 things all moms say to their kids sooner or later is the title of one uh, piece that I read. I'll start the sing, and you guys finish it, Okay. So when somebody, one of the kids asks why they have to do something, mom says, because, whoa, we all have the same mom. <laughs> Number two, if all your friends, yeah, there's usually a cliff, a roof, or a building involved, all right? Okay, number three, my mom was the roof. She, she said if the roof. Number three. Shut the door behind you. I didn't grow up in your house. Shut the door where you Okay. That was one thing Mary could not say of Jesus. Number, <laughs> Number four. I'm not going to say that next service, so you were treated to. Number four. Uh, if you keep making that face, why do you say that? Especially there's a fall involved, right? You'll fall and it'll get stuck in that position. I think it's mom just saying, I'm so tired of looking at that face. I want to scare you out of it. Okay, so you're walking around like that. Uh, how about this? When I was your age... Fill in the blank. When I was your age, yeah, right. It has something to do with bare feet, 
snow or mileage, right? Okay. Now, my mom had a few things that she liked to say. She was a zany character. You know both my parents because both my parents were entertainers. They met on Broadway. And so our house was never a dull moment. And my mom had some strange one-liners that she'd come up with, you know. And uh, I was talking with my sibs about it. And she, 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 she called our neighborhood friends one day. She just said, she just looked at them and said, you bunch of banditos. <laughs> and to this day, we call each other banditos. <laughs> No one really knows what it means or why she said that. But, you know, she did have a serious side to her. And whenever we part company, um, especially if it was a note on the counter that they were going to be gone, she would say, be good as gold. And so the motivation behind that exhortation really is understandable for sure because every mom in their right mind wants things to turn out well for their kids. And when you have, even in this world, good behavior will bring good results. And they want, uh, also moms want to spare their kids from painful consequences of bad behavior. So it's worth saying over and over again, be good as gold. Now, she was certainly on the right track and it's a sensible exhortation. Uh, but what my mom, an unbeliever at the time, couldn't know and didn't know was that no one can be as good as gold because Jesus tells us that only God is good. No one is good except him alone. The best fallen humans can do is really to be good as wood, <laughs> good as hay, and good as straw and clay try as hard as one may, uh, for all have fallen short of the goodness and glory of God. And there's not one person whose goodness isn't marred by sin. And so gold is the gold standard is really for kings. Christ is good as gold. And interestingly, once the king is on board, which happens when you're born again. His spirit, the spirit of Christ, comes into our hearts. Uh, the good king comes to make his home in us. So when, once the soul is raised to new life, uh, the gold standard uh, is not only attainable, but it's a requirement not to earn salvation, because already been there, done that. When Christ came on board freely, by grace and by faith, plus nothing. But once the good king is on board, a, a new good life is in order, and it's a command that we say no to the old nature and die to it and embrace what's now the new life to be good as gold. And there's lots of reasons for this. Now Paul is wrapping up. With his letter to his young protege, Pastor Titus there, who's ministering in a morally corrupt place, an island called Crete in the Mediterranean. And he's there to remind the Cretan Christians there that despite the corrupt atmosphere in which they live, they must make up their minds to make a difference in this world, not to hinder the Lord's work by 
compromising into bad behavior, but, but to help God's work by, along with the good news, live good lives. They had to be good as gold. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Verses 1 through 8, chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of good or righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Verse 8 This is a trustworthy saying, everything that just followed is what he means there. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, being good as gold. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone there before you, the verses Uh, upon which we shall reflect for this morning's um, Bible study. And so we'll keep that up there for a minute as we get situated. Those who have trusted in God must be careful to devote themselves to doing good, to being good as gold, as I've been saying. That's the thesis statement of Titus. It's really the thesis statement of the entire uh, New Testament as behavioral exhortations go. This sums it all up. God redeemed us for that purpose. He died to make us good, to free us from what enslaved us. So the nature of the new life is good. It's his purpose. We have to be good because there's a good God by his spirit living within us. And Titus' whole thing is that people are watching And you cannot be telling people about the good, good father while you're doing bad, bad behavior. It just doesn't work. You shoot yourself in the foot and you discredit God. He says, we do not want to do that. And so in the verses before you here, verses uh, one through three, he's just uh, elaborating. Now, here's what good looks like. Here's how goodness translates into everyday behavior in the community, in the family, in relationships, in our private lives. But really here, he's really talking about socially, uh, civically, as uh, citizens of uh, of a community. This is what it means to be good. And verses Four through eight, then, just to just inspire us, obligate us, and really enable us uh, to make that effort to devote. If you devote yourself to one thing, man, it's a lot of work. Devotion means sacrifice and focus and intentionality, right? And so to be good when you have a fallen nature and a world 
that God says isn't very good at all, then it's going to take a lot of work. And that's why he says you have to devote yourself for all of the reasons that I just mentioned. And probably most of all, somebody just said to me, all I want to hear on that great day is well done, good and faithful servant. Let me emphasize a word there. Well done, good and faithful. Now, this is what God considers good behavior. So if this is lacking in your life, How is he going to be able to say, well done, good, and faithful servant? So for me, the most important verses in the Bible, for me, are here. Because I want to hear him say, well done, good, and faithful servant. Well, I I, I want to know what good is. And he says, well, I'll tell you over and over again, this is the gold standard. This is the good from heaven. This is what God thinks is good. And it rubs our fallen natures and the the world around us pretty much in the wrong direction. Some of it, as we're going to see this morning. So let's dive in. A reminder in the Greek there. We will isolate in a bit, but let's just, from the jump of it, the reminder to do good, if you're taking notes, that's kind of what I have here, the reminder to do good. And, and we need reminding, right? The gospel, when you come to church, you rarely hear something new that you didn't already know. You know the material. You just need constant reminding. Why? Because we have holes in the pockets of our souls. It goes in. And it goes out ever so quickly. And I mean, we've heard the gospel for years and years and years and years. And every time you hear it, the Holy Spirit makes sure it feels like it's there. Wow, that's fresh and something new there because it's living in a life. But we need to be reminded. And the Cretans really needed to be reminded because they lived in that on that Mediterranean island paradise, it was beautiful to look at, but horrible to live there if you had any moral scruples at all. It was notorious, as you recall, and this is important for what he's asking them to do. Uh, they were notorious for lawlessness. Here's a quote about them from a Greek historian, uh, Polybius. He said, you will hardly find anywhere characters more tricky and deceitful than those of the Cretans. Cretans were famous for their ferocity, their greed, and falseness because of their insatiable avarice. Avarice is like greed on steroids. Because of their insatiable avarice, they live in a perpetual state of private quarrel, public feud, and civil strife. And he says, not you Christians who live on Crete. Oh, I want your behavior to to show uh, a distinction between dark and light and bad and good and what's wrong and what's right. I want them to see the good lives because of the good message of the good God. And number one is you are not like those guys who hate authority, despise authority, who want to resist, resist, resist. No, he says, remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility to who? All is a very big and all-encompassing 
word. And so no wonder it's first on the list there. Let's dive in here to subject oneself to the rulers and authorities to be good, ideal model citizens because the, the leaders on Crete, even the leaders, were not that all, not, not that at all. And so while the Cretan teachers, listen, they claim to know God, but Paul said in chapter one and verse 16, by their actions, they denied him. And, and part of what they were doing was being lawless and disrespectful of authority. So he said, you folks are going to have the tendency to follow what the culture is pressing you into. And Romans 12.1 says, do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. And what was squeezing them was this defiant, rebellious, cynical, disrespectful attitude toward any and all authority. They were the ones with the bumper stickers. Question authority. Resist authority. They were the rebels with a lot of causes. <laughs> Not without the cause. Apparently, you don't watch old movies. <laughs> Rebel without a cause. It's, just, it's, it's okay. Your wife will explain it to you on the way home. So by way of contrast, the Cretans are supposed to be model citizens. Remind them not to rebel, but to subject themselves to authorities. Now, every commentator wants to say, every time this comes up in the scriptures, there are never any loopholes, never any caveats except the no-brainer, which God thinks that we have common sense to know, as in Acts chapter 5, when the government insists you do something that God prohibits, then you have to obey God rather than men. And it goes the other way around as well. If they're trying to stop you to, from doing something that God wants you to do, you have to obey God. If they want you to do something that God wants to prohibit, then you have to obey God. But every time this comes up in the scriptures, it is given without qualifiers in a world run by godless, immoral, brutal men. God says, I want you to be model, compliant, easygoing, respectful citizens. Let me show you because there are three really good passages that take this all the way to town. Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Let everyone. For there is no authority except that which comes from which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Verse Peter 2, submit yourselves for whose sake? The Lord's sake to every, big word, human authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor Nero. We're not done. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thankfulness, 
Thanksgiving be made for kings like Nero. Thank God for these people and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, not agitators, not rebellers, not resistors. In all godliness and holiness, this is what's good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if my words rub you the wrong way today, let me tell you a couple things. One, I don't mind. You know why? Because I have nothing to do with this. Zero. I have it up there for you to read. And if you can come to any other conclusion other than the the simple, plain meaning of these words in our culture with our leaders, this is what God expects and calls good behavior. And if you want to hear, well done, good person, then your life has to line up with the good that God defines as good. And this is what he says he expects of his people, no matter who they live, how they, (laughs) no matter who they are, where they live, or whom they serve. Amen. Amen. Why don't we keep it up there then for just a little bit. God capitalizes, one author said, on the stark differences between the behavior of his people and the behavior of the people in the world. This is how God draws people to himself. What a sad and diabolically inspired mistake for the church to seek to attract believers by becoming more like them, to take up their causes, to dumb down doctrine, to take uh, away the truths that they find offensive, to blend in rather than stand out. And so the Bible says, <laughs> Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You can't hide a city on a hill on and, and a moonless night. Why would you light a lamp and put it under your bed? So this is the way we shine against a culture that champions resistance. This is where you get your opportunity to light a candle and people say, wow, there's a difference in you. This is our opportunity not to get sucked in, but to stand out biblically with Christ. That's what he expects. So... While you have it up there, I'm going to say some things. We are not. The employees are always chafing against the boss and the company with snide remarks ever. Not one bad word about a boss from the Christian's lips. Never. You can speak the truth in love. You don't have to put your head in the sand like an ostrich, but you are prohibited from personal attacks. That word's coming up. You're not the gal in the church complaining and nitpicking and causing disunity and fellowship. You're not the student who's disruptive and gets out of class and lays in the street. No, you're the guy not laying in the street, but kneeling in a private classroom, praying for the world, not disrupting. You're not the relative at Thanksgiving who wants to push everybody's buttons and be a source of strife. You are the ideal employee who respects the boss and is an asset to build morale. You are the ideal church member 
the leaders count on to protect and promote the unity and peace in the pews. You're the ideal citizen who wants to help. It's not on the corner creating chaos, but you're found on the corner feeding and helping a homeless person. That is a Christian. That is good. That is not worldly. But wait, there's more. Christians now, he says, there are six phrases that will help you unpack what I mean by being a good submitted, coming under person. That's what the word submit there means. It means to come under. Not to be forced under, not to be wrestled down, (laughs) but to willingly, voluntarily come down as unto the Lord under, to file into rank, or so it says there. And so here comes how we unpack that. Uh, People who submit to authority are obedient. So obedient speaks to the result of somebody who respects um, authority. They're law-abiding. They are policy-respecting people. Um, Annoying regulations don't annoy them so much. At least they don't say it. Paying taxes, meeting civic obligations, that's what the obedience means there. Listen, I had a friend who is obnoxiously driving 55 miles an hour on the freeway in the fast lane, and it was bothering me. And I said, why can't you kind of speed up, dude? You're in the fast lane. And he said, I'm worshiping God with my foot. Number two, <laughs> eager to do what's good, he's saying, listen, these are an independently, independent exhortations. They're all linked to being a good, submitted citizen. Eager to do what's good is saying, it's not passive like, okay, you know, I'm submitted. You know, no, no, you're submitted in allegiance to making things better because you're pro the state and, uh, and what they're trying to do. Whatever is good means you're eager to cooperate and be helpful to lend a hand in the community efforts to be there when there's a disaster. The Rock supported uh, fire victims. Well, the, 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 the government always knows who to turn to when there's a disaster, and they always turn to relief agencies, which are often Christian and to churches. And the churches across this community, all were open, all were helping. We still have funds for fire victims. And if you are a fire victim, come to us. We're not done blessing you. And why is that? Because we're eager to help. You know, The Rock brought food to a fire station and and the guy says, churches always take care of us, Christians are good citizens. That's what we do. We're eager to do what's good. We're in the hospitals. We're in the schools. We're in the jails. We're on the streets. A guy, a police officer came to pick up a guy who was having a psychotic episode here in our offices, a homeless dude. And uh, he said, thank you for all the hard work you guys do in the community. That's what he says. 
And this is what he's talking about. Christians not only are submitted and law-abiding, they're open and cooperative and looking for ways to be helpful. Like Jesus said, if someone taps you on the shoulder and asks you to go a mile, go with them too. That's a governmental thing. The Roman guards who didn't want to carry uh, uh, loads would, would conscript somebody and all they had to do was tap you on the shoulder and say, you got to go one mile. And it was the law. And so he, Jesus was saying, when you, when you get that tap, don't go, oh, brother, you always tap my shoulder, you know. And do you know how far a mile is, you know, and oy vey, my feet, you know, my feet today, I'm really, and you tapped me yesterday, what's going on? He says, when you get tapped by the government, you come under and you go far beyond what's being asked. That's what Christians do. We're cut above. We love those who hate us. We pray for those who persecute us. When we're smacked verbally, we turn the other cheek and let them do that as well. Go all the way. Let me tell you something else you missed. If he sues you for a shirt, why don't you throw in the cloak? Do you see? He's saying you come under with a heart to go all the way. That's the gold standard. That's the Christian way of life. And so I better move on. Don't slander anyone. Blasphemeo. Why does he use such a strong word? He's saying when you're talking to an, about an authority and you denigrate them, to denigrate is to verbally assault or damage, to criticize with a mean spirit, to mock or to make fun of. When you blasphemeo, a leader, God says, you're talking about me. You, I am taking that personally. You cannot uh, disrespect authority who God has established or allowed to be there. And as I said, you can have moral outrage, but you are prohibited from turning and assaulting that person's reputation or character or life with your words. Christians don't do that. They do not do that. If Christians don't have something nice to say, they do not say it at all. It's not saying that we don't say hard things and deal with difficulties. We speak the truth in love, but we don't slander. We don't attack. We don't mock. We don't make fun. We are not sarcastic and cynical in those ways. And all of us have failed there. All of us have failed there. He says, that's not what we do. Moral outrage. Lot had to live among a very corrupt society. And the scriptures say in 2 Peter chapter 2 that that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by lawless deeds that he saw and heard. But it didn't give him an excuse or a reason to go on a personal verbal attack. You are sinning every time you slander anyone. You can go back to the verses. Thank you. Anytime you slander anyone. We've already been through obedient there. You see on the slide and ready to do what's, whatever's good. Now we're at slandering no one. Every mean-spirited critical word you'll be held accountable for when it comes to 
reward on top of your salvation. Salvation, we don't touch that. It came by free grace. But concerning the reward, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which everybody will either get or be forfeited, every word that launched out an attempt to devalue, defame, or to hurt somebody's reputation, anyone, any person, you have lost out and you have sinned. And I have lost out and I have sinned. Because we had presidents, Clinton and Obama and others. And there's names that make us very uncomfortable. Donald Trump. Careful. Careful, says God. In fact, let's do what 1 Timothy 2 says to do. To thank God for our president and pray for him. Ready? Father God, first of all, we're sorry. We have said and and written and slandered and libeled many leaders and many people. Our lips have been stained with blasphemy, arrogant, mean-spirited, things we should never have said. We don't give voice to those things. Rather, we pray. We pray for Donald Trump, the president of the United States of America. We ask you, Father, to fill him with your spirit to protect his life, to work your will through him. We thank you for those who lead in Santa Rosa. We pray that you protect their lives and bless them and thank you for their service. And we pray most importantly, Lord, that you would deal with us ever so severely to teach us to keep a tight rein on our tongues because we are clearly not doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Peaceable, the next word there, is an an interesting word. It means non-fighting. King James nailed it, not a brawler, but it's actually one word that means you're not a brawler. You're not somebody's rocking the boat You're not making waves. That's just not your nature. You don't like to see people who are divided. And uh, rather, you like to bring people together. Here's a great definition for uh, peaceable. Not a rabble rouser. And here's what rabble rouser means. And this is exactly the meaning of the text. A person who speaks with the intention of inflaming the emotions of a crowd of people typically for political reasons. The synonyms are agitator, troublemaker, instigator, and civil disobedience. Let me just say this. Who was the agitator in heaven? Who was the one who incited a rebellion? Who was the very first person to rebel in the universe and is the father of all resistance? All right, moving on. The one who was cast down. Who do you think is the first person who ever said, you're not the boss of me? It came from him. And because of the fall, 
and he shared that lie with our mother. He's not the boss of you. He told you to do something, do the other. He drew a line in the sand, step over it because he's not the boss of you. And now they're babies. The first words out of their mouths. No. And when they can put a sentence together, you're not the boss of me. Do you see that? And then we just go further and further and further along. That's how it is. And does it surprise you that that kind of thinking in the last days is championed? And you're a hero and you'll be on the cover of the world's magazines by doing something that's detestable in God's sight. You might be on the cover of somebody's magazine, but is your name written in another book? If your name is written in the book of life, you need to live a totally different kind of life. This this thing just gets swept in. And yes, you can and should delete your Facebook account. (laughs) If God puts it on your heart, you might want to delete a few of those comments. Go back, Spencer, please, to the first slide with all of the scary scriptures on them. (laughs) Facebook. Your comments, your conversations. Work at the coffee table there, having coffee. It's time to get serious. It is time to believe God's word and put it into practice. It's time to deny the feelings and the natural outrages and all of that and deal with it in a way that puts a smile on God's face. Amen? Amen. Okay, we can go back. I think we are on the word. No, we need the verses. Yeah, thank you. We are on. No, can we go back to the one and two? Thank you. Slander no one peaceable and considerate and to show true humility toward all men. When he says true humility there to all men, he's saying something uh, that means the full manifestation of that grace. So humility is to come in low, you know, like Jesus did, uh, to have a friendly approach, to not have a critical, judgmental kind of feel to you. You know those people where you just feel guarded before you even start the conversation because they once overed you kind of thing. Not to be like that, but to this is to be considered, listen, toward all people, all people. You come in under everyone. That is an amazing thing. And how possibly are we able to do that? Now we can go to verse 3 that says, here's the reason why you can gladly submit to governing authorities that are is kind of challenging. And also to show deference is what humility means. Deference is to just 
Show humble respect, not to be harsh and caustic with your dealings with people, especially who rub you the wrong way. So here in verse three, we're gonna get the inspiration. So remind them to remember, if you're taking notes, remember who you once were or could be without the gracious hand of God on your life. And so he says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions. We lived in mean-spiritedness, malice, and envy, being hated and hating one another. I like what one guy said about this one writer. He said, you don't need to have had a sinful past filled with these kinds of things that dominated your life like most of the Cretans did and most of the Gentiles. He says here in verse 3, the Holy Spirit wants us. He wants all converts, no matter their past or their natural disposition, to remember their own struggle with sin and to, to acknowledge their own depravity and the horrible potential disaster that would await them without the gracious hand of God intervening. And so a lot of people look at that and goes, ah, that wasn't my former life. But notice Paul thinks it was his. He puts a we. At one time, we too. Right? And so he says, to look at me, you'd never know that those are the kinds of things that I was living and trapped and all kinds of problems. And so he says, what will help you to be humble in this whole civic responsibility, community, your family, your church, everywhere, is to remember who and what you are without the grace of God. Because, yeah, we've been delivered from that dominating us, but we still struggle with it. Everything in the list. Everything in the list. We still struggle with it. And so why don't we just take a, a wretched walk down memory lane and do something that King David asked God not to do. Let's remember the sins of our youth Let's remember what dwells in each heart this morning because everything in the list dwells in you today. Let's remember what we are without the grace of God. Seven charges that we have all pled guilty to in the past. Foolish. Notice these guys are all going to be connected. I'm going to weave them together. Follow me uh, as I do. Uh, number one, foolish. Uh, to be foolish, the fool in his heart says there's no God. So to be foolish is to estrange yourself from God, to have willing ignorance of the fact of his existence, and therefore you don't have spiritual wisdom, and you do really dumb things. That's why you're foolish. Now, the fo a foolishness that estranges itself from God will go next to number two, disobedience. Uh, disobedience is the result of willful ignorance of being estranged from God. So disobedience, why not reject authority and do what we shouldn't do uh, and do what we want instead if there's no God or a God we're shunning? And, and then that, that kind of behavior, when you are self-absorbed and doing the wrong thing, it lends itself to the next word, to be deceived. Wrong becomes right and right becomes wrong. 
You've strayed. It means to stray from the path of life. And so when you're disobedient and open to spiritual deception, you are allured by the next set, worldly passions and pleasures. And instead of providing for you uh, some thrill, they enslave you. So we're at number four, desires that enslave. They trap us in this never-ending cycle like hamsters on a cage, going around thinking that the more we grasp at it, the, uh, the closer we'll get to contentment, and that is a lie. Now, when you're living with such desires and such an insular life, it really lends itself to antisocial behaviors like number five, malice, being nasty. You're nasty. Why are you nasty and bitter and mean? Why? Because you hate your life. And you hate your life because you're doing the wrong thing and you're acting foolish and you're not walking close to God. So do you see how it all is sort of cascading one upon another? And so when you are like that, you're just nasty to be around and mean-spirited and critical because you're upset with your own life. The proverb says that a person's own folly ruins their lives and yet their heart rages against the Lord. So there's that anger, bitterness, got to tear people apart and criticize everybody. And then the envy. Now you're upset with your life, and then you see on Facebook somebody's got a promotion or somebody's doing well, or, and you begrudge that, you resent that. Jealousy is, I wish I had it. Envy is, I wish I had it, and I'm stinking mad that you have it, and I want to take it from you. So if you've got to choose jealousy or envy, go with jealousy. <laughs> Now, when you live, now watch and see, see my logic here, is when you live with envy and that kind of spirit, and you can't hide stuff like that. Everybody knows it except you. We all know. Everybody knows. Uh, envious and malice, when you live like that, people don't like you very much. They don't like you very much, but who cares? You don't like them very much either. <laughs> so that's round and round it goes. Being hated and hating others, number seven. And somehow God saw you in it all. And by his mercy, grace, and love, he reached in for no good reason on your part whatsoever, except somehow he felt sorry for you. How pathetic to live like that. And he says, I love you more than that. I'm going to snatch you out of that. And now the gratitude, the gratefulness, and the humility, knowing that this is what I used to be, how dare I cop an attitude and start to kind of pull apart everybody who is stuck in the lifestyle that I myself was stuck in and that I myself am still sometimes attracted to. Oh, the woman at the well, I could just see, you know, she had five husbands and the guy she was living with wasn't her husband. But she saw the light, Jesus touched her soul, bam, 
She knew this is the savior of the world, and she went telling everybody. I don't know if this happened, but the next Sunday she was up, you know, having a Bible study, maybe. Let me tell you. Oh, everything, all you dirty, rotten Samaritans, you know, you loser Samaritans, right? And, and, and Paul is going to say, how can you not have humility toward people in need? When you, that's you. You're not better than them. You're better off than they are because of the merits of somebody else. Not because you decided to wake up and do all the right things and then you judge yourself by your good standards against them and look down your nose at their behavior while the very same things runs through your veins. One writer said, some Christians behave like they are of a total different species than their unbelieving counterparts. Listen, let me throw this in for free while I've got you here. I only got you here for a couple more seconds. Ah, wow. All right. Maybe I shouldn't throw it in for free. (laughs) If your ministry is to moralize the world and get America back to where it used to be and stop doing this and start doing that, you're going to be frustrated, angry, mean-spirited, critical, and your ministry will be about correcting. But if you identify with this, and see, this is the way they're supposed to be because the, the job description of a sinner who's lost is to do sinful things and foolish things. So if you've already got that as a given, you're not gonna, you don't have a ministry of admonition. You have a mission. And now there's room for compassion because you're not constantly getting your nose out of joint and offended by simply behavior That is natural to somebody who doesn't know the Lord. So stop being offended and start praying. Stop being pushed away and come closer to love. Amen? Amen. We got the last part here. I just got to throw it up here because it's the best part. I don't want to lose that. And he says, listen, I want you to remember what Christ has done. When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of anything good that we've done, but because of his mercy. He's washed us, given us new birth by the Holy Spirit who he poured out on us generously through Jesus. So that having been justified means pardoned or just as if I've never sinned. By what? By being a good guy or not being like those Cretans for having good qualities, for working hard and paying my tax. No, (laughs) by his mercy and grace, we might become heirs. We've got this hope, but it's not because we were good. It's because we were the object of his mercy and became good. This is trustworthy, all of this. And he says, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Got to wrap up, but I got to show you this. God opens the treasure house dealing with us sinners. Kindness, love, and mercy. Look at that. Kindness, because he says it's his kindness that said, hey, you're not happy doing this, right? You want to change, don't you? This is dumb. You need the Lord. That's his voice to you. Or you would have just kept going. You didn't just come to your senses on your own. His kindness said, how's this working for you? (laughs) 
And then you went, oh, it's not so good. And then you think it's your idea. It was him doing this the whole time. Kindness, love. I don't know how you show love rather than being crucified for somebody who spits in your face. That's value. He's saying, you're valuable to me. Mercy, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so when we remember what Christ has done, it builds this gratitude, humility, sympathy for others, and faith. Faith. For me, it's faith. Look at this. How can I lose this? How can I ever lose this? I didn't earn it. It was given me. I embraced it. So how can I lose something I didn't qualify for? I didn't earn. It's not resting. wasn't up to me. It isn't up to me today. And it will never be up to me, my salvation. He says, do you trust me? I said, yeah. And he came in. How can you lose that? Because you've been bad? Well, you didn't get it because you were good. <laughs> Out the window with that fear. The other thing it says to me is, is that along the same lines, I think of what happened to me. I mean, <laughs> I walk in, as most of you know, to a bar when I'm 19 years old without a thought about God ever wanting to be a Christian. I had heard about him. I was running. But I walk out of a bar, a born-again Christian, without a Christian anywhere near me. How does that happen? And this is what I'm getting at. It instills faith in my heart that with God, nothing is impossible. I was thinking about somebody, and I was just thinking, oh, this is never going to happen. How could this ever happen? It just can never happen. And the Lord gave me a picture of me on the dance floor <laughs> just staying alive, staying alive. And, and how did I walk out of that disco a born-again, spirit-filled believer? How did that happen? Six months later, I'm in Bible college preparing for full-time ministry. This, what God has done in his kindness and his love and his mercy and his power should get all of our attention to say, with God, the person farthest away, the most impossible to imagine can be saved because he saved you and he saved me. And we ended up, my brother and I got saved together. Uh, long story short, we ended up going to Santa Cruz that day where my parents managed the uh, Victorian Inn. It's now a Ramada Inn. They're in Santa Cruz. And we busted in the doors. And we said, we've heard from the Lord. We're born again Christians, mom and dad. And my dad cried. And my mom, who was holding out, just tolerating my Jewish Christian father, she said, there must be a God in heaven. <laughs> My dad, my brother and sister were there. My dad said, <laughs> my dad said, let's pray. And we got down on our knees, this 19-year-old idiot with a 17-year-old brother. <laughs> my sister, my younger brother, and my mom. And he led us in the most awkward, beautiful prayer 
He's only a believer for six months himself. And we're all there in the front room of the hotel on our knees. And now, now my mother was able to say to me, go out there and be good as gold. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness. It makes us want to be good as gold. And not only that, it causes us, it enables us to be good as gold. You're a good, good father. You give us good, good news to live good, good lives. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.